If you're looking for something to do this May 30th through June 2nd, why don't you join us at CrimeCon in Nashville, Tennessee? We can all rub elbows with people like John Walsh, John Douglas, and Chris Hansen. Come and visit Murder in the Rain on Podcast Row, where we'll be sitting next to some of our own favorite podcasts. You can get 10% off your tickets by using code RAIN at checkout at CrimeCon.com. Hello, listeners. Alicia here with news. Don't worry, it isn't bad. But our own dear sweet Josh is having major heart surgery at the start of September. His health and well-being are of the utmost importance. So for the next few weeks, you'll be getting new-ish episodes every Tuesday. So don't fret, but we'll be taking a break so he can focus on healing. To hold you over, we've chosen some of our favorite Patreon episodes to share with you. If you like what you hear, you can sign up and access a ton of additional episodes, ad-free episodes, extra bloopers, games, shout-outs, and so much more. Please don't hesitate to join. We have a heart surgery to pay for. To our current Patreon members, thank you for sharing some of your special episodes with everyone. We expect to be back at the start of November with all new episodes. Until then, we appreciate your understanding, patience, and support. Be sure to follow us on social media for updates on Josh and for our return date. As always, we want to give a huge thank you to our Patreon members and our newest ones are Emily W. from Monroe, Oregon, Danielle M. from Harbor Grace, Newfoundland, Mandy M. from Bremerton, Washington, and Julie F. from Gresham, Oregon. Thank you guys so much. Gresham! Newfoundland! (laughs) (laughs) This is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. In my last episode, I told the stories of Wallace Guidros and Lenoria Jones, two toddlers who disappeared while in the care of and possibly at the hands of their guardians. Today, I have two more stories regarding missing children whose cases have never been solved. First, Tika Lewis, a two-year-old who was abducted during a family night out over 20 years ago. Next, Sasha Henson and Shana Kirkpatrick, two babies who left home with their mother on a road trip and haven't been seen since. The families of these children still hold out hope that their babies will be returned. So let's get to the details, because you never know what you might know about a case that could help bring their abductors to justice and answer the always present question, what happened to them? Resembling Lenoria's case, a different toddler disappeared from a bowling alley in 1999 and hasn't been seen since. Unlike Lenoria's case, there isn't a video leading police to suspect something happened within the family. However, there are witnesses that noticed a strange man, a man they feel was responsible for the abduction of two-year-old Tika Latrice Lewis. 
Teresa English, a mother in Tacoma with Chippewa heritage, was with her daughter Tika, her four other children, along with 10 other family members, including infants, who were all enjoying the evening of January 23, 1999, with some bowling at the New Frontier Lanes on Center Street in Tacoma, Washington. Along for the festivities was two-and-a-half-year-old Tika Latrice Lewis, the shy, dimpled, curly-haired toddler wearing pigtails, a green Tweety Bird shirt, white sweatpants, and some Air Jordans, was happily displaying her favorite Christmas present she had received just a few weeks prior, a clear purse adorned with fish. Inside were some coins her uncle had given her and Starburst candies, her favorite. The evening began around 8.30 with the alley packed as other groups and families bowled away. It was so busy that there wasn't even an open spot in the parking lot. So as the night went on, the family played their games at lanes 7 and 8. Around 10 p.m., Tika lost interest in bowling and wound up in the arcade area. First, she tried, using those coins from her purse, to win a teddy bear from the claw machine. Not having any luck, her uncle stepped in and won it for her. Giving her the bear, Tika then turned around and gifted it to her 10-month-old baby sister. I know. Isn't that so sweet? So cute. I think that really says a lot as who she was even as a toddler, you know? Then she found the Cruisin' World car racing game and, like so many kids, entertained herself by playing with the steering wheel, driving along with the demo race on the screen. The arcade area was located to the left of the lanes that the family was occupying, closer to lanes 1 and 2 and the cruising game was only six feet from the front entrance. Anyone that has gone bowling with a large group, especially including children, knows that you tend to spread out and take up more space than just your lanes. Juggling games and kids, the family created a sort of shuffle. First, Teresa stood in the upper area near Tika, but it was soon her turn to bowl, so her boyfriend Fred took the spot at the games. He wasn't Tika's father, but was the father to another of Teresa's children. Tika's father, Robert Lewis, was incarcerated at McNeil Island Correctional Center at the time for undisclosed reasons. Then Fred took his role and Timmy stepped up as chaperone. As Tika continued racing, Uncle Timmy turned away to watch Fred take his turn. Looking back, Tika had left the racing game. But two-year-olds are known to wander, especially in a building full of so many lights, sounds, and distractions. It was a crowded Saturday night of blacklight bowling. So after Timmy alerted the family, they stopped their game and started to look for her. Together, they went through the building, searching everywhere for the little girl. Behind ball racks, behind video games, in the bathrooms, under tables. Realizing fairly quickly that Tika wasn't in the arcade area or responding to anyone's calls, they approached an off-duty police officer who happened to be working there that night and informed him of Tika's disappearance. Hoping she was just mixed up in a crowd, an announcement was made over the speaker system, asking the patrons to look for the little girl. Within 15 minutes, police were there. The parking lot was blocked off, so every remaining car would be searched. The search soon spread out from inside the alley, and for 15 hours, the one-and-a-half-mile radius surrounding the alley was searched extensively by a group of 33 searchers with eight dog handlers and a helicopter, all in hopes Tika had simply wandered away, but there were no traces of her. Interviewing the family, there were initial concerns that a woman who had requested to hold one of the infants in the group could have just taken Tika, but she was quickly cleared. Everyone at the alley was questioned, and with further investigation, they were also cleared. 
Due to Robert's incarceration, there weren't concerns regarding custody issues that could have led to her being kidnapped by him or someone doing it on his behalf. The fact that his incarceration was happening when his daughter went missing is a guilt that he carries to this day. Hours quickly became days. Investigators checked in with registered sex offenders who lived around the bowling alley. It led nowhere. Neither did the psychic the family spoke with on that Sunday. Within the first few days, 30 missing persons posters were put on the side of buses, and the family enlisted the help of a Chippewa spiritual leader who led the family in traditional prayer. This wasn't the first time New Frontier Lanes had had an issue with children and kidnappers. In the November before Tika's abduction, a four-year-old boy was sexually molested in the bathroom. When the incident was reported, the perpetrator was described as having brown, curly hair and a beard. Even the security guards recognized the description as someone who had been at the alley before. Wait, that the description was the boy that was molested or was no, description the, the of description of the man that they uh, suspected of doing it? The man that they suspected of molesting the boy. Do they boy. think he was there when Tika was there? Well, you'll just have to wait and see. Oh, I don't like this at all. <laughs> that December, a white man with brown hair was reported as attempting to take a six-year-old boy out of the alley, claiming to be the boy's father while doing so. Which reminds me of your Wesley Allen yeah. Dodd at the movie theater. Ugh, this, it's just like every parent's nightmare right here. It's so You're like having a night of family fun, you turn around yeah. and then they're gone. Yeah. Three days after Tika was kidnapped, a father saw her story on the news and had a tip for the police. Thinking the incident was nothing of note, he hadn't reported it at the time. After seeing her story, though, he knew the information could possibly provide answers. Earlier, on the same day Tika had been taken, a man with brown curly hair was at a park located less than a mile from the bowling alley. The father saw a curly-haired man attempt to take his two children— Chasing him away, the man watched as the curly-haired man fled in a blue 1995 Pontiac Grand Am. This was helpful and informative, but not much more. No one has been found or arrested in regards to those incidents, but it is thought that they may have been connected to Tika's case. Within the first month of Tika's disappearance, more than 700 tips had been reported and 300 people had been interviewed. Her story appeared on America's Most Wanted, but it soon fell from the front page, then from the back page, then from the papers altogether. Years passed with vigils and headlines that ran annually, the only information changing being the year. Finally, another strong lead came in 2011, 12 years later. A witness reported having seen a maroon late 80s, early 90s, four-door Pontiac Grand Am with a spoiler and dark windows go speeding out of the parking lot the night of Tika's abduction, Interesting that it matched the same type of car from the other incident at the park. At 13 years gone, Tika's story was featured on the show Find Our Missing. That bump in publicity was appreciated, but things quickly returned to being quiet. The bowling alley, once the neighborhood hub for weekend family gatherings, was torn down and turned into a Home Depot. The vigils continued. Then, a cold case detective revisited the case in 2020 and found new information. Well, it wasn't new information. It was information lost to time and ineptitude. Oh, no. On that fateful Saturday night at the alley, 17-year-old John was also there with his family. It was where everyone went. 
All of the kids wandered, families were bonding. It was a sea of joy with a splash of the chaos that those settings bring. Probably too busy playing to hear the intercom, John and his family had no idea anything was going on until they went to leave for the night and found the parking lot swarming with cops. Police may have been checking in with everyone leaving, but they weren't asking specific questions, so John didn't share about the encounter he had experienced earlier in the evening. A few days later, he spotted one of those bus posters of Tika's precious smile, and he started to piece everything together. He wasn't sure what he knew, but he felt the cops needed to know it, too. Going into the interview, he talked about that night and how, as he was heading to the restroom, a man wearing a blue plaid shirt and faded jeans, holding a little girl's hand, rushed past him. It was a memorable moment because that man passed too closely and quickly bumped into John. Surprised by the shoulder check, John looked at the man, expecting an, oh, I'm sorry, dude. Instead, the man continued rushing away, pulling the little girl along with him. At first, he thought the guy had a little girl that urgently needed to use the bathroom. Looking closer, John noticed that the little girl was dark-skinned and the man was white. Not that that meant the man couldn't have been her father, but it was just something John had recalled. The way the man rushed and didn't acknowledge what happened stayed with John as being odd. Seeing a report regarding Tika's family, he realized the man was obviously not the little girl's father. I, thanks for coming forward. But how would that not have crossed your mind to tell somebody? Well, he was only 17. He was a 17-year-old boy. I know a lot of 17-year-olds who would immediately go to the front desk and say something. Yeah, that's true. I think, um, or if you see police outside, what do you mean they're not asking specific questions? I think sometimes people are, well, I think it was like, If I had to guess from, you know, again, a 17-year-old's perspective, they were probably saying, like, maybe maybe they were just, like, glancing in the cars and saying, like, did you see anyone or something. Yeah, but that would have jogged my memory of, like, hey, yeah, yeah, I saw this this rude guy. I mean, yes, it's on police to maybe be a little bit more specific. Like, we're looking for this little girl. That would have probably even, you would have been like, yeah, I think I saw her. I think a lot of times people are scared of being wrong. I guess, but, you know, time and time again, you just, you got to say it. Yeah. I'd rather you're wrong yeah. than be camping out on information for 10 years. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. He called in three days later. Oh, okay. No, 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 no. <laughs> he didn't camp on it. Okay. No, no, no. Uh, you had me worried there. I thought so he, he had it a little he longer. Had, he had seen it happen at the bowling alley and then wasn't really sure what was going on and then saw Tika's bus bus poster three days later. I see. I thought then you meant you were further in. in the future. No, no, no. So this is the report that the uh, cold case officer is reading. I see. And he's like, okay, what did John have All to right, say about that night? That wasn't that. Sorry, sorry, It was only John. three days. Three days is still a long time. It is. It is. But, it, you know, you're right. If they weren't talking about a missing person and it's just a bunch of police cars my first thought was somebody has a gun oh yeah you know yeah oh yeah if it was like a swarm of cops not there's a missing child everyone search your car like usually they span out and tell everyone exactly what you're looking for yeah well as you'll hear (laughs) mistakes were made Not only did the police have someone who may have been a witness to the kidnapping, but he also had a description. Like with the previous incidents, the man was described as being white with shoulder-length brown curly hair and a mustache. Adding to it, John said he was around 5'11 with a husky build. The most notable piece of information was that the man had a heavily pockmarked face. 
I just learned that word not all that long ago, so for anyone like me, pockmarked means acne scarring. I hear that word and I think of that bad guy from the Goonies. He was very pockmarked. Yes, he was, and I am surprised you didn't know that word. I know, especially for how much acne I've had in my life. Oh, stop. John thought he had given some extremely important information and was surprised he didn't get more calls from the police to go through everything again and again. But maybe he had been wrong and what he shared with them had been irrelevant to the case. It wouldn't be until 2020 that he would be contacted again. That's because it was 2020 when that cold case detective found that report of John's and realized that a detailed description, especially regarding the noticeable pockmarks, had never been made public. Oh, boy. Why? Well, what is there to even say about the constant ineptitude of police anymore? Another tip he found in the file, a news crew had been filming a reenactment at the bowling alley about a week after the incident. They had called the tip line because a man was watching the filming and was acting strangely. His description, the same, including the pockmarked face. Oh, my God. And if everyone had known that information from John from the third day, this would have raised many more alarms. That's very sad. So when was that reenactment filmed? A week after the kidnapping. Oh, oh, my God. All these years. Uh huh. All these years. I have I have been in contact with uh, Tika's family trying to arrange an interview where struggling to get that scheduled so once I'm able to talk to them we will obviously release that but I cannot imagine the fear of losing someone like that and not knowing and especially your child and who's a toddler is so horrifying to me like my brain cannot really grasp it but if I found that kind of stuff out I mean there'd be hell to pay I don't know how you don't go full John Wick and be like you had one job yeah and I can't imagine. And like best case scenario, they find her and she doesn't know them at all. And yeah. that's even that's painful. Yes. So it's like any way you look at this, mm-hmm. it's just terrible. Yeah. That detail came to light two years ago. There may have been tips since then, but the case is far from closed. This last July 4th was Tika's 26th birthday. Her mother celebrated it on the Search for Tika Facebook page never giving up hope her daughter will come home to her someday. Until then, she holds closely the memories of their two years together and cherishes the jacket Tika wore to the alley that night and her Pooh Bear stuffy that rarely left her side. Someone, somewhere, knows something. Someone in the Tacoma area was around in 99 and knew the man with shoulder-length brown curly hair. They know the man that had pockmarks and wore plaid with jeans and drove a Pontiac. They know the man who started acting strange maybe at the end of January of that year. Maybe he moved away. Maybe he got real quiet. Maybe he went to the bowling alley all the time. Maybe he got cocky. Perhaps this person needed to read every article and watch all of the coverage of Tika. It was probably someone who was comfortable in the area of Tacoma. I seriously fantasize about getting a hold of a handful of Tacoma-area yearbooks and looking for a brunette pockmarked man. Between the attempted abduction at the park and the multiple attempts at the alley, it makes me think that he knew the area and how to get in and out of it quickly. But that's just my gut feeling. Tika Lewis was two and a half years old at the time of her abduction. She is black, Native American, and white. She was three feet tall and 35 pounds at the time. She has asthma, which requires an inhaler. 
She has black hair with natural red highlights, brown eyes, dimples, pierced ears, and a large birthmark on her left buttock. She has eczema, which left small patches of discoloration on her face and buttocks. There is a reward for information that leads to an arrest. Most importantly, you can bring a mother and family peace. You can always report a tip anonymously at tpcrimestoppers.com, or you can call in any tips to 1-800-222-8477. It is never too late. It has never been too long. Please, even if you think what you know is meaningless, it could mean more than you think. That's very depressing, per usual. Yeah. All these kidnapping ones are really hard to palate. I do think it's got to be such a different type of pain and grief than murder. Well, you just because you don't know in our minds are just these terrible pits that spiral. Yeah. Like you literally have no idea what happened to her. Yeah. So how could you not think about every Every possible? Yeah. The more I'm looking into these kidnapping cases, you so often see how the waves of hope come and go, Mm -hmm. especially when. And this is something I never really thought of before. But when people are rescued, like after the Cleveland case, mm-hmm. the three girls that were there for like a lot of 10 people years, gave up hope on them. Exactly. And then those kind of cases bring so much hope to families because yeah. they're like, maybe they're still alive and they're just trapped somewhere and can't get out. And it's like, I I don't know if that's good or bad or otherwise. That, it's just that, that would be my... horrible. That was my biggest takeaway talking to Kimberly Kersey's sister was oh, yeah. the waves of of hope. And right now they have a hope that they're going to find out information, that they'll know what happened. But just that perpetual not knowing. Yeah. I just they have so much strength and like my heart goes out to people that deal with that. Yeah. I truly cannot imagine. The last three cases I've covered, Wallace, Lenoria and Tika, were all somewhat similar They were toddlers who were in the care of loved ones who went missing. Tika's, of course, stands out as the lone stranger abduction. But few missing children cases are as bizarre as the case of missing sisters Shayna Ashley Kirkpatrick and Sasha Latine Henson, two babies missing for over 20 years. We'll be back with their story right after this short break. Twenty-one-year-old Kimyala Henson had decided she was going to take a road trip. But this wasn't your average drive. It was going to be international. The young mother had decided to join her childhood friend, Christina Mayer, 24, and her husband, Curtis, on a drive to California before turning north to British Columbia. Hers was a spontaneous decision, one Kimyala's boyfriend might have thought was an April Fool's prank, There had been a knock at their door, to which Kimyala was surprised to see her old friend Christina on the other side, a friend she hadn't spoken to in quite some time. Christina claimed she and her husband Curtis would be taking a drive to British Columbia, and they wanted to see if she and her two babies, Shayna, 22 days away from her second birthday, and her sister Shasha, who was only 69 days old, to join them. Sadly, I will preface this by saying once again, information is somewhat limited. I was unable to find any background information on Kimyala except that she was a young mother. 
And while it was her two younger daughters she decided to take with her on the road, someone on Reddit with a matching last name claims to be the older sister of the two, meaning that by 21 years old, it's possible Kimyala may have had at least three young children. I will make an educated guess that Kimyala was originally from Missouri. That's based on her friend Christina being from there originally, and it seems more likely that someone would relocate from Missouri to Portland than vice versa. I could be totally wrong, of course, but it makes a bit of sense. And to clarify, Kim Yala, or Kim, and Stephen's relationship, they had met when Kim was 18 and Stephen was 19 at a country western bar. They lived together in Kim's mom's apartment, but had broken up in December of 2000. Be it for co-parenting or financial reasons, Stephen continued to live in the house, and from what it sounded like, they still had some sort of friendly relationship. Some articles do call him the boyfriend, so I think it was like an old-school Facebook relationship status. It's complicated. Although Christina and Kimyala had been friends for a long time, neither Kimyala nor her boyfriend Stephen knew Curtis, the other man. For that very valid reason, it's believed Stephen hadn't wanted Kim to go with them. He later spoke to reporters about the gut feeling he had about the strange circumstances surrounding every aspect of this trip. The possible daughter from Reddit, who I did reach out to but didn't hear back from, said that her mother had gone with the couple willingly, the topic even starting fights between Kim and Stephen. Kim was so hell-bent on taking the trip, possibly to get a break from Stephen and the constant arguments their relationship brought, that she dug her heels in. She was going. Stephen couldn't shake the red flags he was sensing. What kind of person shows up at the door of their childhood friend that they haven't seen for years with a plan to go out of the country? With the end goal being a sightseeing tour in British Columbia, there was one stop the group would have to make before heading north from Portland. They would first need to drive eight hours south to Sacramento, California. In order for Kimyala to enter Canada, she would need her birth certificate. So on April 4th, 2021, the group of three adults and two babies headed south. After making the drive, the group arrived in Sacramento on the 5th and were documented as receiving the birth certificate early that afternoon, which I guess would mean maybe Kim Yala had been born in California and then her family or caregivers then moved to Missouri, possibly. Now, I'm going to have to say, uh, you know, not knowing the whole story yet as an outside person, yeah. I'm going to have to agree with the boyfriend here. It is weird that someone who hasn't hung out in that long of a time are going to drive all the way to Sacramento yeah. before going up north to the border. Yeah. That's a big commitment. That's a lot of days. Where you could have just waited a week or two for your trip to get it by mail. Yeah. It it sounds like it was all very spontaneous. And uh, again, total assumption here. You're 21 years old. You're stuck in your mom's apartment with your ex-boyfriend. Yeah, who comes up with that kids. kind of gas money? Well, this was, you know, 2001. It was a little bit more affordable. Mm, but $1.10 a, a gallon, maybe. <laughs> something like that. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, it. you know, we definitely made some interesting choices when we were 21. So We sure did. Um, we sure did. Obviously, it's different when there are kids involved. But, but I can see where that... And, and maybe, like, who knows if she's ever even been out of the country? No, and granted, I'm just you saying, know? I can see his perspective. Oh, here. absolutely. Like, that's a little weird. That's absolutely. strange. I'd feel weird if any of my childhood friends showed back up and were just, like, at my door. Hey, do you want to hang out? Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> you need to call or something. 
Yeah. So I definitely I can see the allure of let's get out of town for a handful of days, you know, a, sure, especially two days two, down and back and two then young kids, you feel like yeah. you're not doing anything. But, I could see that. And that's a lot of driving with two kids. Uh, in the car. Yeah, I cannot even including imagine. Uh, what is that? Three months, not even three months. Uh, just like a three month old baby, you know, mm-hmm. like that's that's a lot to deal with. By seven that night, they had arrived at the Shasta Lodge in Redding, about a two and a half hour drive north of Sacramento. They all checked in and took to their rooms. This was the last time Kimyala, Shayna, and Shasha were ever seen. What Kimyala hadn't known when her friend came to her door was that the man, Curtis, was not her husband. And his name wasn't even Curtis. His name was actually Frank Uring. He was 28, and he was a wanted man. At 4 p.m. the next day, Kim's credit card was used to fill the gas tank as the trip went on. Strangely, it was used at the pilot station in Fernley, Nevada, oh. about two and a half hours northeast of Sacramento. Odd. Not a route you would take to get up to Canada. About five hours later, just before 9 p.m. that same day, another gas station. This time, it was the Winner's Choice gas station in Sparks, Nevada, which is just a half an hour from Fernley. Who needs to fill their tank after driving five hours while remaining in the same area? Were they just buying stuff with it? No, uh, my understanding is that it was gas. Interesting. 30 minutes after that, in essentially the same part of town, Reno, a couple, a man and a woman, checked into the Easy 8 Motel located on 5th Street. Well, correction, they attempted to check in. They were unable to as their card had been declined. Another correction, the card they were using belonged to Kimyala Henson. Whomever this couple was that had the card were not only not the rightful owners, but they apparently had no other means of payment, so they just left. Three and a half hours later, at 12.50 a.m. on the 7th, the card was used once again. It was another Winner's Circle gas station, this time an hour south in Gardnerville. 4.30 a.m., two hours southeast in Hawthorne, Nevada, at Texaco. This was in 2001, which for those of us that say (laughs) graduated that year, it doesn't seem all that long ago. But certain technology was still in its infancy, so it wasn't shocking that the bank didn't stop the card or try to call Kim about the excessive usage at random locations. And because of that, no red flags were raised in regards to the route the group was taking. Why had the trip become a tour of Nevada? The 8th was a quiet day for the credit card, but the 9th was a different story. Kim's money wasn't used, but her birth certificate was. Christina Mayer had made it to Las Vegas, perhaps alone, perhaps with Kamala with her, perhaps only in the company of Frank. And using the certificate, she was able to get a Nevada ID at the DMV. It wasn't clear when Kim and the girls were expected to return home. One report stated the 17th. Even though Stephen hadn't heard from his girls since they had left on their adventure, there weren't major concerns. I can only assume that since he hadn't wanted her to go in the first place, he might have been feeling nervous the whole time they were gone. But he wasn't the only one to have been getting radio silence. None of Kim's friends or family had heard from her since the 4th. There were rumblings of concern as people had been desperate to contact her as her 60-year-old mother had passed away due to complications from diabetes. So she's 
off the grid. Like no what, one can get a hold of what her. What year was this? 2001? 2001. Did she yeah. have a cell phone or was she? Oh, it, I know they it were, did not say. Because so. I know those were getting popular, but that was the year I got my first cell phone. And even if they did, being out in the nowhere of Nevada, yeah. like. Would she have even had yeah, any that, service? Those were the days of like, you better be in a major metropolitan area. Everything changed on April 20th. Kimyala and her girls had been out of town for 16 days when a shocking discovery was made at a park in Florida. Collier Seminole State Park is located on the southwestern side of Florida. Sprawling within one of the largest mangrove swamps in the world, the park covers over 7,200 acres with notorious Floridian wildlife, hikes, and camping. The park has a ton to offer. Driving through the park after getting off his shift that April morning, a police officer looked over to the picnic area and saw two people lying on a sleeping bag. Watching, he quickly realized they weren't moving. He figured they were just sleeping and he would need to get back on momentary duty so he could ask them to leave. But as he approached the cement picnic bench they were laying next to, he soon realized this scene was far more ominous than it had initially appeared to be. Checking on the woman first, it was clear that she was dead. The man laying near her was still alive but unconscious and bleeding as he had been shot. A rifle lay across his leg. He died soon after being discovered. It took a few days, but the deaths were ruled a murder-suicide, the man killing the woman before turning the gun on himself. Tuesday, there were more answers. Inside the Kia left at the scene, presumably the couple's, Police found Kimyala's wallet, which held her credit card, calling card, and identification. In the trash bin at the site of the bodies, Kim's torn-up birth certificate. And in the car, the ID with Christina's picture but Kim's information. Receipts for meals in the car showed what looked to investigators orders and costs consistent with feeding two people. They also laid out the path the couple took to get to Florida. From Nevada, they went through Utah to Colorado, New Mexico, Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi before ending up in the Sunshine State. To figure out how this couple with strange IDs ended up dead in a Floridian park, detectives needed to learn who they were. By the 24th, that question was answered. The woman, a victim of a shot to the head, was in fact 24-year-old Christina Mayer. The male wasn't a Curtis nor her husband, Rather, he was 28-year-old Frank Oering, and his name was well known to police in Missouri as he was on the run after being arrested for conspiring to have his wife murdered. Word soon got back to Portland that Christina and Frank were dead, and the family learned that Kim, Shayna, and Shasha were not with them. Immediately, desperate searches began, and not just in Northern California, Nevada, or Florida, but across the country. The missing persons report was officially filed in Portland so that if any of them were to be located, Portland would be contacted first. It didn't take long for tips to come in, one even coming from a woman who claimed to have seen a young woman with two little children walking along Interstate 75 in Florida. Regrettably, that story was quickly debunked and authorities were still at a complete loss. Benita Oering is the 28-year-old ex-wife of Frank's, and she wasn't surprised to hear that he died by suicide. She claims that he spoke of committing the act frequently. She also didn't feel Christina was part of any romanticized death pact. It was in her opinion that the shooting caught her by surprise. The warrant for Frank's arrest came the fall before the road trip from hell. 
he had hired someone to strangle his then-pregnant wife, Benita. Thankfully, she survived, and he was charged with conspiracy to commit murder. Frank and Benita, both licensed practical nurses, met in 1992 when they were attending Salt Lake Community College. Just the year before, Frank was known as Father Frank due to his carrying a Bible and vocalizing his desires to join the priesthood. That dream was put on the back burner when he met Benita, and the couple was married in 1993. The start of their marriage was blissful, Bonita even saying he was, quote, kind, considerate, the perfect guy. Around six months later, Father Frank went from being a man of God to a man of Satan. Benita claimed Frank started to purchase candles, and he was laying them out in menacing patterns. He then purchased Satanist books and would cast spells in the living room. It's kind of surprising to hear that this story is from 2001, since that is some real satanic panic of the 80s stuff. The most famous Satanist would be 1960s cult leader Anton LaVey. He adopted and popularized rituals and shocking imagery as being part of his religion, when really, there are a variety of Satanists, including someone very close to me who is a member of the Satanic Temple, which is really more of a political group than a religious one. They use their poll as an organized religion to counter the actions of those who insist on teaching about magical boats and forcing pledges. Often when the Satanists argue for the equal treatment of what maybe Christians are getting, it's decided, for example, to maybe not put a statue of that religious figure on school grounds. I don't say all of that to counter anything Benita claimed. I have no doubt Frank was doing the things she said he was. It's more so that we don't know what he was practicing exactly, and we don't want to equate a certain religion or spiritual practice to being evil or promoting murder. Aspects to the new Frank were frightening to Benita. The incense, mumblings, knives, swords. She told Frank how she felt, that she didn't like what he was doing, but the more she asked him to stop, the meaner he got about it. By 1994, he had adopted an all-black wardrobe and wore a large star pendant necklace. He also had a group of 7 to 14 people who had started to follow his satanic teachings. He had finally become Father Frank. Meeting Christina, a certified nurse's assistant, through the group, Frank and she were soon having an affair. Frank and Christina had both attended high school in Bethany, Missouri, located next to the Iowa border. That town's population was just 3,000. In June of 2000, Frank hit Benita and was arrested. While he spent time in jail for the domestic abuse charges, he decided that that was a good time to have his girlfriend Christina move into the house that he shared with Benita. Oh, that doesn't seem like a good situation. Bonita knew she could say no until she was blue in the face, but Frank wouldn't hear her or care about her feelings. That certainly had not been the only instance of Bonita being the victim of Frank's temper and abuse. He was verbally abusive, saying nasty things. He would punch and hit her, being set off by any little thing. A bad day at work, annoying family members. It didn't take much. Surrounded by an uncomfortable relationship and religion, Benita was in a horrible situation. She would overhear the newer couple talk about Christina's friend in Portland. Frank would also threaten to kill his wife, and then he wouldn't have to deal with a divorce and his domestic violence charges would be dropped. In October, six months before Frank's death, Benita was sleeping in her bed when she was awoken by a man who was straddling on top of her, and he was attempting to strangle her. 
26 weeks pregnant with Frank's second child, their oldest being six at the time, she fought like hell. She survived but was hospitalized and in a coma for a week. It's almost like being pregnant is a mortal danger for women. Detectives working Benita's attempted murder case were able to figure out that Frank had hired and made a plan with persons unknown. The attacker was to go inside and kill Benita. Frank would get her insurance money and then use it to pay the killer. Besides Benita fighting for her life and surviving, there was another flaw in Frank's plan. Unbeknownst to Frank, Benita had changed her insurance beneficiary, and the money was no longer to be bequeathed to her husband. Frank was arrested in December for the murder-for-hire plot and pleaded innocent before being released on a $100,000 bond on the 20th. His next court date was set for March, a date he didn't show up for, hence the warrant. To make the escape with Christina, Frank used his parents' car. When he took their car, they called the police to report it stolen, happy to use the opportunity to help track down their fugitive son. But the police response was, Hey, we can't do anything about it. You gave him permission to use it. At that same time, on March 27th, just eight days before picking Kim up at her home, Benita and Frank's divorce was finalized. Learning who the occupants of the vehicle found at the Floridian Park had been, authorities searched the car for Kim and the girls. Shayna and Shasha's car seats and bags should have been in there, where their father Stephen had watched them be placed just a few weeks prior but neither they nor their belongings were anywhere to be found. Getting a better idea of what was going on was helpful to the investigation, but it didn't ease the concerns of those who loved the missing girls. They had unknowingly left with a very dangerous man, a man who had been willing to use Kim's credit card and birth certificate, a man who had tried to kill his own pregnant wife, a man who then killed his girlfriend and took his own life. The search for Kimyala and the girls quickly turned desperate. Seeing as Christina was using a false identification and had been in possession of Kim's real one, there was no telling what ID Kim would be using if she were able to do so. On April 29th, a driver pulled off a highway to stretch their legs and came across a partially buried, decomposing body in the high desert near Pyramid Lake, north of Reno. The body was that of a young woman. She had been shot. When an agent spotted a flyer that matched the description, The body was later confirmed to be that of 21-year-old Kimyala Henson. Testing the bullets they found in Kim, they were able to match those that were used at the murder-suicide in Florida. Mapping out a 100-square-mile radius around where Kim had been located, the search for her babies began. But there was no sign of them. Their father, Stephen, saying, I don't really have much hope to tell you the truth. On May 10th, three major searches of the area had taken place. Stephen was feeling more hopeful then, saying he would grieve for the girls when he knows that he's lost them. As the investigators searched the desert of the West, the teams on the East Coast were checking for surveillance videos from establishments Frank and Christina had gone to while on their cross-country trek. The hope was that footage would narrow down the possible location of the girls, although it was clear fairly quickly that they hadn't made it all the way to Florida. Questioning Christina's family, investigators discovered she had called an uncle who lived in Missouri on April 15th. The uncle claimed she was scared as she had written some bogus checks in Wyoming. She also needed her uncle to send some money to her in Miami. The stress and fear of being on the lam was getting to Christina, and she was ready to turn herself in. The plan was that she would call that uncle back in one hour. He never got that call. 
For 21 years, Stephen has tried to hold on to any shred of hope that he will ever see his girls again. It is no exaggeration to say that it is like they disappeared into thin air. There has never been a sign of them. No clue as to where on the trip they were no longer in the care of their mother, then no longer in the care of Frank and Christina. There are theories that the couple was so legally and financially desperate that the killing of Kim could have given them a new, albeit stolen life, where they could use her identity and maybe start fresh. But then why have her take the kids? Maybe she just refused to go without them. In the way, were they simply disposed of? Then there are other theories that suggest, given the young ages of Shasha and Shayna, were they sold or trafficked? Could it be possible that they are still alive and simply have no idea who they really are? This remains an open case. Kim's death, ruled a homicide, was attributed to Frank. As for Christina's level of involvement, that remains unknown. Did they plan on dying together, or was she just another victim of tumultuous Father Frank? This case covers a lot of ground, so someone had to have seen something. Perhaps you saw the Kia Sepia occupied by Christina and Frank as they passed through the southern U.S. Maybe you saw the girls and their mother in a hotel in Northern California in early April 2001. The episode blog will have photos of the girls from when they went missing and the age-progressed photo of Shayna. Shasha was too young for progression to be made. Shayna Ashley Kirkpatrick was born on April 22, 1999. She would be 23 years old now. She was last seen on April 4, 2001. When she went missing, she was 3 feet tall, 24 pounds. She is white with blonde hair, blue eyes, and has a triangle-shaped birthmark on the back of her head. Her baby sister, Shasha Latine Henson, was born on January 25, 2001. She would be 21 years old today. When last seen, she was about two feet long because she was a baby and couldn't stand. So I'm going to say long instead of tall because that's how little she was. She weighed just 16 pounds. She is white, had brown hair and brown eyes. There is a red mark on the top of her head. And at birth, she had a broken collarbone. So perhaps there is scarring or limited movement or pain that would still be an issue. If you think you have a tip of any kind regarding the children, Kim's murder, or anything in regards to this case, please contact the Portland Police Department at 503-823-0044 or the FBI Portland office at 503-224-4181. There are so many possible things that could have happened. When you were mentioning the theories, like the first one that came to my mind is Yes, they probably wanted a new life and there was her opportunity to take her ID and mm -hmm. that the kids were likely just disposed of like their mother. Yeah. But maybe there is a component of human trafficking, but I feel like you'd have to have connections. Yeah. Like, did he have them? I don't know. Like, that could be the reason they were in Nevada. But what makes me... I, I agree with you that there needs to be connections. So it makes me wonder because we're talking 2001, social media wasn't a thing. So unless you were in contact with people, mm -hmm. you didn't know if they had kids and you didn't know if like what their statuses were in life. Yeah. And so it's like I, I if they hadn't talked, then they probably didn't know she had kids. So that like the whole point of them bringing them along was kind of like they didn't know. The kids yeah, existed. I would I would think that the mom would just be like, yes, I'll go. Can I take my kids? And if yeah. they don't care. And also the fact that Christina called her uncle 
and was like, I'm ready to turn myself she in. She was probably regretting what she had gotten herself into. And who yeah. knows how involved she even was. Like, was he exactly. holding a gun to her exactly. the whole time and forcing her into this life? And I, maybe, yeah, maybe she didn't expect it to go as far as it did. But at know. the same time, I feel like she had to have known a little bit of how off his hinges he was. And she's the one that mentioned her friend. Benita yeah. overheard them. So she's the one saying, like, I've got this friend. Like, I don't know if that was just one person she could think of in her life. Yeah. That maybe she knew wouldn't have, like... um a police background or something. I, I don't know. I don't know how like involved she was. Was yeah. this a plan they hatched together? Yeah. Uh, it's so sad. And unfortunately, it's so much uh, space in the U.S. that they covered yeah. that these children could have been left at. Well, and imagine like how often are we looking for adult bodies and we don't find anything? We're oh, talking about a bodies. 16 pound mm-hmm. baby. 16 pounds. That's like that's well, so small. Scavengers. Yeah, and we're talking past. about microscopic bones, and so it's just like and if perhaps, they were in the desert, I would, I, yeah, I would think that would be impossible. It'd be impossible to find, but also perhaps they are alive. Yeah, were trafficked, adopted, who knows? Left at a fire station, dropped off with someone that they knew wanted kids or could take care of. That like, there's just no. Telling. Like it's a nice thought that maybe they're alive and just don't know who they are, and they have perfectly happy lives. Yeah. Uh, it seems unlikely in this scenario with someone so unhinged. Yeah, if I had to make an educated guess, I would think that they got lucky that she needed, and maybe that's why they said Canada, because they knew someone would bring their birth certificate with them. I wonder if Christina thought of her because they look alike. I wonder if that's why she thought Do of her. Do they look alike? I don't know because the information is Enough so... Enough alike? I, the the pictures of Kimyala are black and white, and she kind of looks different in each one because it's different. Well, I mean, angles. she definitely they definitely ha- knew what they were doing by getting the. Birth but certificate. I hadn't thought of that. So if I if I'm needing someone's birth certificate so I can get a new ID yeah, and be on the you run, don't, you don't need to have any description of what you look like if you have a birth certificate, right? And in a social or whatever, you need two pieces, right? I don't know if you. And did then back if they're then. like, oh, and you have to have that to go out of the country. Let's go talk to her because either she looks like me or yeah, we're the same it. age. They planned it. Uh, or maybe she's naive and I know she'd be on board for that. Like there were enough pieces there and that's why they did it. Absolutely. Yeah. And then I think it's like now we have what we need. My guess would be that they were all in the in the desert together. But yeah, it's maddening. And I'm just unless casually reading it. I'm not involved. No, I mean, unless he somehow had a connection that would have allowed him to traffic those children I think that's probably what happened that kind of organization seems surprising I mean he's got these followers and whatever but I feel like trafficking would feel like a different kind of criminal if does that make sense like yeah I mean I who's I don't know like that'd be the focus or something but what what is the police stance do they think that they're likely dead I don't know if they've officially said and I I don't know if they've done you know because what is it after seven years you can get a death certificate I don't think that that has happened for the girls because there's no answer at all because there's zero trace so they can't say and it uh, just so happens that one of our patreon members who got a shout out today Emily was one of the people that asked us to cover this case oh really yeah oh how funny because this has been written for weeks well, yeah, well, we talked about it before, but yeah, it was it coincided, totally unrelated. Oh but it my coincided gosh! Well, you're welcome, time. Emily. 
not physic, you stupid. You silly slut. (laughs) Probably too busy playing to hear the overcom, John and his family had no idea anything was going on until they went to leave for the night and found the parking lot swarming with cops. Excuse me, overcom? What did I say? Overcom? Yeah. What's that? Intercom? Oh, intercom? Yep. I like I like overcome. Yeah, though. that's kind of cool. Actually, makes more sense. Thank you. I don't know why I <laughs> made up that word. Let's make a new word, though. I like it. <laughs> it just feels right. It's true. What are you talking about? I have a whole temple that's completely pockmarked. You d- no, really? Is yes, I know my face, ma'am. I have one from chickenpox. Oh my god, are you okay? <laughs> oh my god, I feel like I'm high right now. <laughs> John thought he had given ex. I seriously fantasize about getting getting a hold of a ton of handful a ton of handful of what (laughs) you know (laughs) we're we're gang banging (laughs) ring the bell it's time for a gang bang (laughs) gang bang time (laughs) and then I had to sit through Harry Potter and watch some old guy die and a bunch of people (laughs) and I'm like this bitch shushed me (laughs) That's, Let that's it go. my Harry Potter experience. Let it go. <gasps> Oof, the disrespect. <laughs> I will not let it go. That was jarring. That was I was shushed in 2007. I don't like it. <laughs> that's like, oh, I remember when I got slapped in the face. Oh, shit, I'm sorry. <laughs> and you better use Virgin Mobile where you can customize your ringtones and refill your card for 25 bucks at the Fred Meyer and feel real cool. Virgin Mobile. Okay, don't give away ads. <laughs> I just want to go on that cruise ship. They had it on The Bachelorette. It looks so oh, I, fun. Josh told me all about it. Oh, my God, really? <laughs> We're obsessed with the Virgin cruise ship. I hate the color red. You like brown more than red? Yes. Wow. Went through a brown phase. Remember, I had a brown car. I had brown work pants. <laughs> <laughs> I have brown work pants today. Not diarrhea pants. Oh. <laughs> me neither. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> I'll gangbang myself. <laughs> A gangbang for one. <laughs> the Valentine's gift from his mother a few years ago. What was it? Microwave desserts for one. <laughs> A cookbook. You're going to go home to have a dessert for one. <laughs> Out of nowhere, it's like, oh, do we have brownie mix? And like oh I don't know he's like oh we got to go check and see if we have brownie mix I was like oh yeah we got to make a brownie that sounds so good and then he was like well in case we don't I think we have cornbread mix <laughs> like that's a and I said, effective you. <laughs> effective replacement I was like are you trying to say that in- to replace brownies if we don't have them we'll just have cornbread I like cornbread though cornbread's pretty good that's like when you go to take a drink and you think it's soda and it's milk. Like that <laughs> is not the same. You cannot trade. I don't know. If you're in the right the right headspace for cornbread, it's pretty tasty. But if I'm in the headspace for brownie, <laughs> don't bring your headspace of cornbread at me. I'm talking about brownie. Maybe a marble with a cornbread. On May 10th, I'll do the birthday gasping here. <gasps> okay. <laughs> Make fun of me. That's right. <laughs> That bump and plub, plub, blub, He wasn't sure what he knew, but he felt the. Uh, now I'm having anxiety that I didn't hit record and I can't see from here. 
and it seems more likely that someone would relate. He was actually Frank O-Ring. O-Ring. But as he approached the cement picnic bit, bitch. <laughs> oh my gosh, I had a dream there was a scorpion in my headphone last night. Follow his satanic teachings. Teachings. Learning who the opu- occupants. When an agent. The teams on the East Coast. The teams on the East Coast. Ooh. Oh, oh no. God, Emily. Josh, anything? No. <laughs> Great job, everybody. All right. We did it. Have Goodbye. A, have a good time. Have a good time, everybody. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough. Edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs>